Now, I'm sure that you found your place back in the New Testament at 2 John. We are going to consider 2 John and 3 John together. And then we'll pick up the little book of Jude, a very important book. Now, I want to have a word to say about 2 John as well as 3 John when we get to it. But I would like to share with you today an introductory matter that's very important, and very important especially in this hour in which we're living. Now, we have come here to the second epistle of John, and we've already considered the first epistle, and there's yet to come a third epistle of John. An Afro-American, or as some frankly prefer to be called, a black brother of mine in the South, I knew him years ago. He had the best way to divide these three epistles of John that I've ever heard, and they are three that you will never forget, I can assure you. And they are to me the most striking and satisfactory of all. He called first John, one-eyed John, then two-eyed John, and three-eyed John. Now, friends, you won't forget the three epistles of John if you remember them like that. And I'm grateful to this brother for the way that he divided them. He was, by the way, one of the three conservative ministers in the community in which I served in Nashville, Tennessee. And he actually was a real brother in Christ. And that was way back, friends, way back in the days before you heard anything about this. I have always had the feeling that any Christian, regardless of what's on the outside, if he's right on the inside, that he's my brother. He's been born again. He's my brother. And that is the great truth, by the way, that we've had in First John, and it'll be continued in Second and Third John with a different emphasis. We are considering here, then, two-eyed John now. And the first impression, I'm sure, is the brevity of these two last epistles. It's something that's almost startling. You wonder, why insert just 13 verses in the second epistle? And in the third epistle, you have 14 verses. So that, regardless, both of them are very brief indeed. Now, someone is going to say... Well, doesn't the brevity discount their message? It obviously means he didn't have too much to say. Well, not at all. It would not in any way take away from the importance of the epistle. In fact, it actually enhances it. It reveals that though it's very brief, it's very important, and it's essential in getting a perspective of the first epistle and not a perverted viewpoint. Let me illustrate it like this. My doctor has given me two kinds of medicine that I'm to take if I have an attack of diverticulosis. One's a little pill that I have trouble locating in the bottle. It's so small. The other is a capsule that looks like it's too big to swallow. You almost need a gallon of water to get it down. You have to float it first. But I've discovered in using both of these 
that the small one, the little one, the teeny-weeny one, it's the most potent of the two. In fact, I found out it's the most important one of the two. If the big one doesn't work, then you use the second one. Now, what is two-eyed John all about that makes it so important? Well, John, in his epistles, confines his message to the family of God. The little children are to love each other in the family of God. And this is the mark of a child of God. Love Christ and love the brethren. And the brethren are to be distinguished by their attitude and relationship to Christ. In other words, to deny the deity of Christ is the very spirit of Antichrist. And this is the way that you recognize the other little children, is because of their relationship to Christ. And also their love for the other children in the family of God. And that is also one of the two distinguishing marks of a child of God. I think we ought to go back and pick it up again. In 1 John 3.10, I'm reading. Now, listen to this again. In this, the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. Now, that is cast in the negative purposely. So there'd be no way in the world for any individual who claims to be a Christian and does not measure up to sort of wiggle out of this. Well, you can wiggle out of this one because if you do not righteousness, you're not a God. Now, to be a Christian means that you practice in your life righteousness. These are the outward badges of a child of God. You are to know the Lord Jesus as your Savior. Now, the proof of it is, to others, is that you practice righteousness in your life. And if you don't love your brother, now, this is a Christian brother. This is not the universal brotherhood of man. The Bible doesn't teach that. But if you do not love your Christian brother, then you're not a child of God. I didn't say that. John said that. And if you want to take it up with him, then you take it up with him. But don't take it up with me, because I didn't say that. John said, that's the mark. That's the way you tell. Now, how about the lost sinner who's not in the family of God? Are we to love him? Well, we're told that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that Whosoever would believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, will you listen to me carefully? We're to love them to the extent of taking the gospel to them. We're not to love them as sinners. We're not to love their sin. And I don't see that we're asked to love them personally, because they're very unattractive for the most part. But the interesting thing... We are to love them to the extent of taking the gospel to them. And as we saw in the book of Jonah, Jonah did not love Ninevites. 
But God sent him there because God loved them. And God said, since I've loved them and they've turned to me, Jonah, I want you to love them. Then Jonah loved them. So that that is the relationship the child of God has to the lost world. Love the world to take the gospel to them. But you can't love the sinner and his sin. We're not asked to do that. We're asked to love them enough to take the gospel to them. That's the important thing. We're to love them in that sense, because God loves them. When they turn to Christ, we'll love them also. Now, the question arises, how about false teachers, those who deny the deity of Christ? And John's going to make it very clear in this second epistle here that That is something we need to be aware of. He says in verse 7 of this little epistle, For many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Now, what about false teachers? What should be our relationship to them? All right. Now, will you follow me very carefully because... This is going to be the nub of this epistle. And if you and I don't get this, we're going to go haywire in our interpretation and come up with a pseudo-liberal viewpoint. Because all of this love, love, love stuff today, actually it's not exactly biblical at all. Because they say we're to love everybody. Well, there's some that we're told not to love and be very careful of. We're told, love not the world, the things that are in the world. And the things that are in the world are identified with these people in the world that have made it as it is. Our love is to take the gospel to them, to give them the word of God. Now, let me say this, and I'm turning over in my mind. How am I going to approach this to make this clear today? Because this is going to go contrary to the thinking of a great many people today. And I'm not concerned about what you think about me in this connection. I am concerned that you see what the Word of God has to say. Now, the key word in this second epistle is truth. Now, the key word in the first epistle is love. And it's love that is confined to the family of God. How the little children are to love each other. That is the entire sum and substance of it. Now, what about the second epistle when the key word is truth? Because he begins in verse 1, it says, "...the elder unto the elect lady with her children, whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also all they that have known the truth." Now, what about love and the truth? Because the first epistle emphasizes love. The second epistle emphasizes truth. Now, when these two are in contrast and conflict, which one should prevail? And if we get the answer to that, then that will determine our relationship to the false teacher, to the one who denies the deity of Christ. Which one should prevail, truth or love? 
Now, the so-called apostle of love is going to shock you and me out of our sentimental complacency and our sloppy notion of love. Will you listen to him in this epistle? Which comes first, truth or love? And I may shock you now, truth comes first. Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He didn't say, I'm love there, but I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. You have to come to the Father through Jesus Christ. No other way. Why? Because he's not only the way, but he is the truth. Now, John wrote, actually, later on, that God is love. But after the Lord Jesus was here and said he was the truth, John said, God is love. But that came later. Now, will you listen carefully? Love can only be expressed in the bounds and context of truth. Love can only be expressed in the limitations and boundary that Scripture sets. Now, sound doctrine is all important. In fact, when we get to the third epistle, John's going to startle you in that third epistle. And, well, he's going to startle you here in the second epistle. He's going to tell us that we are not even to entertain a false teacher. We're not to have fellowship with them at all. Now, that's fine and well and good enough. I'm sure that most of you who listen to this program would be called conservative. I do hear from several liberals that listen to us, and I don't know why, but they do, and they write us, very frankly, rather unusual letters. And we're delighted that they listen. But I'm very candid to say that the jungle today of liberalism is a dangerous jungle to walk in. And I just heard this morning of a young man that was in the service, had a real witness for Christ. And he went to a seminary, apparently got lured to it, a seminary that destroys your faith. And this boy now has gone out in the social service work, and his testimony is null and void, and he's doing nothing in the world but treading water. My heart goes out to a young fellow like that. Now, there's the other side of the pathway that you and I as Christians walk today. And on the other side is the wilderness of extreme fundamentalism, because there are rattlesnakes out there and other venomous and poisonous creatures. And you have to be very careful. And as we said before, we have learned over the years that God's men today who stand for the truth and preach the truth of God I've found, by and large, a man you can depend upon. As I said last time, and I want to repeat it again, these men, I've never heard them attempt to separate brethren. I've never heard them try to wreck or ruin the ministry of another brother at all. And I have found them, by and large, men could be depended upon. And they were men that were very gracious in their manner. I remember hearing this story of the late Dr. Harry Ironside. 
he was holding a conference in one of these conference centers. And you know, a great many people, as I've heard him say, they go to these summer conferences for just one purpose, to compare one speaker to the other speaker and to try to set up some sort of a conflict. And he said that this man came to him one day, and at least I heard this. He did not tell this to me at all. I heard it about Dr. Ironside when I went to a certain conference myself. And I found there that they attempted to compare you with the last speaker, and then the next speaker coming along would be compared to you. That was the way they did it. And that's a conference that I very seldom go to. They don't invite me very often, if you want to know the truth, because I don't like that method at all. But anyway, this man came to Dr. Ironside and said to him, Dr. Ironside, Dr. So-and-so, who was here last week, he said so-and-so, and today you said the very opposite. Now, which is correct? Now, it was on a minor point of doctrine. It was nothing that was vital, but it was a difference of opinion, as all of us have differences of opinion, but we can differ without being disagreeable. And so, Dr. Ironside says, well, I didn't know that Brother So-and-so taught that. He says, that's quite interesting. He says, maybe I should look into that. I could be wrong. And he walked away. And the brother stood there with his mouth open because he surely couldn't get an argument there. May I say to you that I'm confident that Dr. Ironside never felt he was wrong, but he at least shut up the brother and kept him from trying to drive a wedge between brethren. Now, that is the thing that, in my judgment today, is more dangerous, actually, than liberalism is. I can spot a liberal, and I can say truthfully that I do not associate with them or fellowship with them. I have nothing in common with them. I've been accused falsely by the extreme viewpoint of fundamentalism that I fellowshiped with a certain bishop during a campaign here in Southern California. Well, to tell the truth, I never even met this man. I have no reason to. He and I are in two different businesses altogether, and I've never even met him. I have no fellowship with that. But I have found out that the most dangerous ones for me are the extreme fundamentalists. And I would say I'm more afraid of them, and I'm afraid of these that are a little different than the fine men who stand for the Word of God in the past and many today. And on the other hand, I've met others who prattled pious platitudes and claimed that they had the truth. And woe unto the man who disagreed with them on minor matters, especially the matter of separation, as if that was the all-important matter. And their priorities were not doctrine, but assassination of character and name-calling on the lowest level. I have met both ministers and members of churches that I was actually more afraid of than a rattlesnake. The venom of bitterness and jealousy and hatred was dripping from their mouths as they feigned their love and devotion to Christ and to the truth. 
Therefore, the great message here of Second John is this. Truth walks in shoe leather. And if it does not, it's dangerous. It's dangerous. And we need to be very careful of both sides of the spectrum today of faith. There is another word of caution which we should look at in connection with what we have said now in order to get a proper perspective of what John in this second epistle as well as the third epistle will be talking about. We have already seen that love and truth are inseparable. In fact, truth and light are the same. In the first epistle, he said, you remember to walk in the light. If we walk in the light as he is in the light. And we saw that the light and the truth is the word of God. So love and truth are inseparable. And Christ is the epitome of both. He is the incarnation of both. He is the truth. And he is love. God is love and he is God. So that now there's another word that is featured in this very brief brochure that we call the second epistle of John. And it is the word walk. If you'll notice in verse 4 it says, And I greatly rejoice that I found of thy children walking in truth. And verse 6, And this is love that we walk after his commandment. And then at the end of the verse it says, Ye should walk in it. And then there are several suggestions here that indicate where he's talking about walking. For instance, in verse 10, If there come any unto you, and bring not this doctrine. Well, in order to come to them, there must be the walk. So we now go to the opposite end of the spectrum of the Christian life. Not only is there truth out there in right field, but also there's a danger getting into left field in another area besides doctrine. But the walk is important. And that takes us back now to the third chapter, verse 10 of First John, where he says, In this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil, whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God. Now that righteousness we've seen is Christ. And to deny the deity of Christ is certainly not to do righteousness, neither he that loveth not his brother. Now, we have here this second thing that is very important. The walk is important. So we go to the opposite end of the spectrum of the Christian life. Not only truth is essential, but the walk is essential. And we are told now to love the brethren. Now, the believer walks today in a very dangerous pathway through the world. We walk through a pathway that on the left side is the jungle of liberalism and apostasy. It's beautiful but dangerous jungle because in it are beautiful and dangerous animals that are ready to devour us. And then on the opposite side of the pathway, there's the swamp and the desert, and it's filled with rattlesnakes. And I want to say that this happens to be the swamp 
of extreme fundamentalism, where they're totally devoid of love. Just so you have the right doctrine, that's the only thing they think is important. We must be careful. A brother may pat you on the back today and the next day because you do not cross your T's or dot your I's as he does. He'll attempt to crucify you, to destroy you, to circulate a report, to try and nullify your influence. Because of an overweening ambition, he'll trample you underfoot. Your reputation is not safe in his hands, and he'll exhibit hatred and bitterness, not love. Now, I've been in active Christian service since 1930, and I've met some of the great men of this century, giants of the faith, who preached the truth, and they were great men. And I never met one of these men who tried to separate brethren or attempted to dull the effectiveness of the ministry by some slurring gossip. But may I say to you that these men were great men not only in doctrine, but in their lives. Now, this is the part of the introduction to this little epistle. In fact, the introduction here of this little epistle it takes in the first three verses to tell the truth. And it's sort of like the tails wagging the dog here, such a long introduction for such a small epistle. But actually, it's a personal letter, and it's written by John to the elect lady. The Greek word is electa, and electa is really a title. It could be the name of the person, for that matter. And the question is often asked, does it refer to a Christian lady in the early church by the name of Electa? Well, it would seem that it was addressed to some lady in the church, or, as I prefer to interpret it, speaking now of interpretation because I'm not clear in my own thinking whether there was a lady by this name in the early church or whether he is addressing the early church at that time. You must recall that John is the apostle who writes of the family of God. Paul writes of the church of God. And Peter writes of the government of God. And if you keep that in the background of your thinking, when you come to these epistles written by these different men, it will help you to understand many things they're saying. Now, regardless of whether it's an individual or a church, he is thinking of it in the context of the family of God. They're in the family of God. Now, apparently there was a woman who was extending hospitality to all those who claimed to be Christian, though some of them were actually heretics. They were denying the deity of Christ. They were denying the great truths of the Christian faith. And John warns here against entertaining such folk. And that actually is the purpose of this little epistle. And it gives now a balanced viewpoint of the first epistle. This idea of love, love, love today, that you're to love everybody that comes along, I don't find that in the Word of God. 
Now, God so loved the world, but he never asked me to love the world. In fact, I'm told, love not the world, the things in the world. And I understand that to be the culture and the civilization, this man-made thing that man has set up in the world today and has come down through the centuries. But I also understand that God is not saying to me, I want you to build up some sort of a sentimental feeling toward the lost and love them and then bring the gospel to them. God says to me, as we saw in the book of Jonah, God says, I love them. I want you to give the gospel to them. And when you give the gospel to them, then you will learn to love them. That is the thing that is important. And I understand when he's talking about love. Yeah, I not only understand it, John's making it very clear. You're to love the family of God. You're to love other believers. Now, you're to love them in the Lord. Now, I think we need to be very careful about that love because a great many of these offshoots today of the hippie movement are interpreting agape love as nothing in the world but sex. A lady called me this morning, and she's been saved through the radio ministry, and she said to me, Dr. McGee, I just want you to know I love you. And then she sort of caught herself when she said that, and she says, and I hope you understand, I'm not talking about man and woman love. I'm talking about I love you as a brother in the Lord who led me to Christ. Well, I understand that, and I believe that's the kind of love that John's talking about. Here, love in the family of God, and that needs to be exhibited today in the church. I think that there are times now for many churches that have built up a reputation of being fundamental in the faith, and I would say that it's time not to exhibit love among the brethren. I would say that I need that in my own life. I'm sure you need that in your own life. There are very few folk that actually question the fact whether I'm fundamental or not. The criticism I hear most in Southern California, they call me an extreme fundamentalist. I don't think I am, but that's what many say. That's what you are. But I don't worry about that. The thing that I do not worry about it, but I'm concerned about, is that we love the brethren. That's important. But this thing can slop over. We need to recognize that it has boundary in the family of God. Now, who's in the family of God? Here comes along one of these heretics, as he did in John's day. He's apostate. He's actually antichrist. He denies the deity of Christ. And Gnosticism was coming up then in the church. You see, Peter and Paul were already dead and had been dead 30 years when John wrote these epistles. Gnosticism was beginning to come in. It actually denied the deity of Christ. Now John is saying, when one of those fellows comes along, you're not to extend love to him. You're not even to entertain him. And that's very important for us to see. Therefore, the theme of this epistle is for truth's sake. For truth's sake. When truth and love come into conflict, this is quite interesting. Truth is that which is the one that is to predominate. It is the one that has top priority. Did you notice that Paul in 1 Corinthians 
13 didn't say, Now abideth faith, hope, truth, and love. He just said faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. But when truth is brought in, then truth comes first. That's very important to see. All important to see. In other words, truth is worth contending for, and it is wrong to receive false teachers. Now, that's the position that I take very definitely. I think that the truth in the Word of God is worth contending for. And when I say truth, I mean that which is basic to the fact that this is the Word of God. No question in my mind about it. And the second thing, the deity of Christ and his work on the cross for us. Now, when I meet a man that's true on those essentials, then he and I can disagree on non-essentials. I have a very good friend. He's a Pentecostal preacher, and I played golf with him. And you know, I naturally get into a friendly argument. And I always end up by saying to him, I said, Brother, you and I agree on so many things. And I love to hear you talk about the Lord Jesus and talk about his death on the cross. You thrill my heart when you talk, as I've heard you talk. But I said, Brother, I want you to know that you and I disagree on a few points, and I'm going to pray for you because I think you're wrong. Well, you know, he turns around and says the same thing to me, and we leave each other laughing. And as far as I know, that man has never said an unkind word to me or about me. He's my brother. I wish he could see it as I do, but it'll just have to be that way till he gets a little more light, and I want to be patient with him. But I want to tell you, he stands true on the inspiration of Scripture. He stands true on this matter of the deity of Christ. He stands true on the fact he died for me. Now, when a man does that, he's my brother, and I can't escape that. Now, even in this little epistle, I have made a threefold division. And love here is expressed in the boundary of truth in the first six verses. Love in truth. And then, verses 7 through 11, its life is an expression of the doctrine of Christ. You will express what you're thinking. A friend of mine came up to me after I'd made that statement in the sermon. He says, there's an exception to that, Dr. McGee. And I said, what is it? He says, it's a woman driver. He says, when she puts out her hand signal, she's going to turn left, she turns right. He says, she doesn't always act like she's thinking. Well, may I say to you, many of the women I've met, they act like they think. And for that reason, action certainly reveals what you're thinking, what's in your heart. Now, personal greeting is in the last two verses, 12 and 13. False teachers are not to be received by the Christian, but true teachers are to be received with joy. Now, this makes this very lovely here. And I want to say just one other word, and it's relative to another word here. It's the elder unto the elect lady. Now, the word is presbyteros, and presbyteros is presbyter. It has a twofold meaning. It could mean a senior citizen. It could refer to age. Or it could be a title referring to an office or a minister or teacher. And candidly, I'm sure that John primarily just calls himself here an elder, 
speaking of his office, he doesn't call himself an apostle. And I think he also infers the fact that he's now an old man. He's actually up about 90 years of age in the 90s, approaching a 100 when he wrote this epistle. Now, this refers to John here. And now we have that much nailed down in the epistle. The elder, John, unto the elect lady, evidently an outstanding Christian woman who had been entertaining a few of the apostates, the agnostics in the church. And John writes this warner that to love the brethren means not to love heretics at all. Now, friends, I'm reading verse 1 of the second epistle of John. It says, "...the elder unto the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also all they that have known the truth." Now, twice in this epistle, the word truth is emphasized. And as we've said, that's the key to the epistle. Now, the elder we identify as John, and he could be using it in a twofold way, which would mean he certainly was a senior citizen at this time. He was in his 90s, and also he was an officer in the church. He doesn't even call upon his office as the apostle. And the reason, I think, is quite obvious. The one he's writing to accepts his authority, and all he is calling himself here is the elder. And it's unto the elect lady. And again, let me repeat, the word is electa. It could be the name of a prominent woman and probably was in the church. Also, it could be the church that he has in mind. When it says, and her children, well, the children could be either the physical children of the woman or the spiritual children of the church. Again, these can be taken both ways. And that's the reason that I've emphasized the fact instead of the individual, the church. And we could say the church at large and the church today, that is. When we say the church, we're not thinking of any local church or any denomination, but the total body of believers that there are today. And this has been relevant for the church down through the centuries. In fact, it's been very productive in the life of the church, what is written here. And that is so important that we believe that now, since there's been such an emphasis on love, that we need this little epistle to cause us to shape up and to get a correct perspective of what love is. Now he says, I love in the truth. And we said that love can only be expressed, Christian love, in the bounds of the family of God. And that means those that have the truth. And the truth here is the Word of God and also the one that is revealed in the Word, which is the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, whom I love in truth is actually it. And he is saying two things here, that the object of his love must be another believer in Christ, 
a genuine believer, and also that he is genuine in asserting this, that this is just not a pious platitude that he is uttering here, but that this is quite genuine and quite real for him. And that is something that we actually need to keep before us here. He says, whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also all they that have known the truth. Now, he embraces the rest of the body of believers then, and they also love the other believers and love either this church or this particular woman in the church because of her outstanding testimony. She was a very generous woman who opened her home to believers, and we will be talking about that when we get to it. Now he says in verse 2, For the truth's sake, which dwelleth in us and shall be with us forever. Now let us pause there, because he says, For the truth's sake, and the truth's sake means a defense of the truth. We need to recognize that the truth today needs to be defended. We need to stand for the truth of God, for the Word of God. This very sophisticated and blasé method today that a great many of our so-called conservative men adopt to attempt to be clever in what you have to say. Don't come out flat-footed and say it just as it is, but toy around with it, build up some alliteration, And I'm for that, as you well know. But the point is, let's state it clearly for the truth's sake. Let's come out and stand for something. I had an encounter with a man several years ago. I was told by a student of his that he didn't believe a certain thing, and I quoted him on that. And he became very much irritated with me, and he should have if I was wrong. And I told him, I said, I'd like for you to just clarify if you would just write me a letter and state to me clearly what you believe. I'll be very happy to read it and to make my apology. Well, instead of writing that kind of a letter, he wrote a letter highly incensed at me that I would even suggest that he believed a certain thing. And so I wrote again, and I said, all you have to do to clear this up is just to state clearly. And I put down at the bottom of the page, I believe this, I do not believe that, and then left a place for an answer, making it very easy for him. And that really irritated him. And I was blasted with the third letter, so I forgot it and found out later that the reason he didn't answer was because he actually believed that. But he attempted to give the impression that he did not believe a certain thing. And I would respect him for what he believed, although it would be different from what I believe. I would never consider a man a heretic or an apostate that would believe what he did. But the very fact that his method was and is never to be clear 
on just exactly what you do believe. Now, John is making it clear here, for the truth's sake, which dwelleth in us and shall be with us forever. The truth's sake, and thank God we'll have it forever. In this day when you can't believe politicians, you can't believe college professors, and you can't believe the scientists, and you can't believe today the military, it's nice to have somebody that you can believe, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ, that for the truth's sake which dwelleth in us, and the Spirit of God makes these things real to us, and shall be with us forever, and that this thing will not change, it's unchangeable, and truth is that. Someone has put it like this, what is true is not new, and what is new is not true. Now, that's like a great many generalizations. It has some exceptions to it, of course, but it's very good. Now, will you notice here, he moves on in verse 3 in this introduction, and he adopts something that is a little different from Paul and Peter and James and the other writers, in fact, himself. Grace be with you, mercy and peace from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth. Now, here we go again. By the way, I hadn't marked this word for truth here, and that means that it occurs more times than I'd even suggested. So that here we read, Grace be with you, mercy and peace from God, the Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. Now, there are three words that we need to be clear on in our thinking, and they differ without there being really a great difference in them in the sense that they apply to the same thing. One is love, and the other is mercy, and the other is grace. Now, John introduces the word mercy here. Now, what is the difference between the love and the mercy and the grace of God? Because there is a difference, and in fact, a very great difference. We have dealt with this before when we were back, for instance, in Ephesians. We dealt with this, and you have it stated in the second chapter, verse 4 here, but it says, But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace ye are saved. Now he says God is rich in mercy. And he says, because of his great love for us, that he saves us by grace. So now... Let's take a look here for this, I think, is very important for us to see. Now, what we have here is love. What is the love of God? Well, God is love. And before anything was created, God was love. Somebody says, well, who did he love? Well, there was the Trinity. And love is that in God which existed actually long before he exercised any mercy 
are any grapes. That's the nature of God. That is what is called an attribute of God. God is love. But the interesting thing is that the love of God never saved a sinner. The love of God caused God to move in the direction of mercy and grace. And it caused him to exercise mercy and grace. Now the question arises, what's the difference between mercy and grace? Well, mercy is that in God which duly provided for the need of sinful man. That is the mercy of God. Now, I'm quoting a teacher of mine in this connection because I want to be rather exact, and that's something he was, and it was Dr. Chafer. Mercy is that in God which provided for the need of sinful man. God today is rich in mercy. Why? Because he loved you. That's what he says here in Ephesians, the second chapter. That makes this such a wonderful scripture because it combines all three here. He's rich in mercy. Now, why is he rich in mercy? Because he's love. And because God is love, he by mercy provided for the need of sinful man. But mercy didn't save man. We are told here, grace is that in him which acts freely to save because all the demands of holiness has been satisfied. Therefore, God today is free to act in grace. He can come to you a sinner who can't provide anything for God. You can't provide anything for him. You can't offer him anything. You haven't anything to offer to him. Now, grace means God can come to you and say to you, a lost sinner, I loved you, and I'm merciful, I'm rich in it, and I provided a Savior for you. Now, if you will trust Him, by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Now, there's a fine distinction here. Somebody says it looks like a distinction without a difference. Well, as I said at the first, there is a difference in that which doesn't differ, because it all stems from the love of God. But God does not save by mercy. You see, after all, our God is a holy God. And to say God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth on him... You see, God didn't so love the world that he saved the world. He didn't do that. God so loved the world, he provided a Savior by His mercy for the world. Now God can save by grace. But you see, there's something else here that is important. Salvation is not only the expression of the love of God, but it also expresses the justice and the righteousness of God. And we not only need John 3:16, we need Romans 3:26. And will you listen to it? Paul says, and I wish I could take this whole passage, but I can't, to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Now, in order to justify you when you trust Christ, God has to be righteous. 
and holy and just. And he just can't open the back door of heaven and slip you in under cover of darkness. You and I are not fit for heaven. We're alienated from him. We have no fellowship with him. There's no communication. Communication broke down in the Garden of Eden. Now, he's the one that renewed it. And he has to be just and righteous. Now, how did he become just and righteous? Why, his mercy provided a Savior. And why did his mercy? Because he loves you, you see. And he's righteous and do it. He can be just and the justifier of those that will believe in Jesus. So now John can write, grace be with you. (laughs) That's the way God saves you. Mercy. Mercy provided a Savior and peace. Now, when you have all this, then the peace of God that passeth all understanding is going to keep your heart. You will know, as he said, for the truth's sake which dwelleth in us, it'll be with us forever. These great truths are not something God's going to change. He's not going to change his mind tomorrow and say, well, I'm going to act differently. I see public opinion as going in another direction, so I'll change and go with public opinion. God doesn't change. He's not a weather vane. It's like the man that had on his barn a weather vane, and on it he said, God is love. And a preacher drove up, said to this farmer, you mean that God's love is as variable as that weather vane? The man says, no, I don't mean that. He says, I don't care which way the wind's blowing. God is still love. And friends, that's true. He's love. And because he's love, he's provided this for you. And he'll never change. Grace be with you. Mercy and peace. You can have peace from God, the Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ because he's the one that died for you. He's the Son of the Father. That's his position in the Trinity. And this is all done in truth and love. I remember it has to be done in the context of truth. There are those that write me and say, you are very dogmatic. Well, I always appreciate those letters because I'm not always sure that I give that impression and I want to give it. When I'm teaching the Word of God, I'm very dogmatic about it. Now, if you want to ask me what I think I'll be doing this afternoon, I want to say to you, I don't know because my wife hasn't decided yet. That can change. I'm not dogmatic about what I'm going to do this afternoon. But right now, I'm talking about Second John, and I'm very dogmatic about what he says here. Now, this, by the way, gets us through this tremendous introduction, but we're still in this section that love is expressed in the boundary of truth. Now, listen to him. I rejoice greatly that I found thy children walking in truth. Now, the children, either these are the children that are members of the church, a local church, it could be, are this woman, her physical children. And I think it can be both and probably refers to both. I found of thy children walking in truth. And it's wonderful to have children that are walking in the truth. As we have received a commandment from the Father. Now, the commandment is that we walk in the light as he's in the light. Verse 5, And now I beseech thee, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment unto thee, 
but that which we had from the beginning. Now, you will recall from the first epistle of John, the beginning here is the beginning, actually, of the ministry of Christ, the incarnation. It begins there. Now, in the teaching that the Lord Jesus gave was this, "...if you love me, keep my commandments. By this shall the world know that you're my disciples." Not because you're fundamentalists, but because you have love one for another. And he says this is something we had from the beginning, something that Christ gave us, that we love one another. Now, here we have it again. Walking in truth, will you notice that, and loving one another. We're talking about brethren. This is the thing today that's needed in the church, or any church will become lopsided. You can become over-sentimental in the church, and there's a lot of this sentimental tommy rot that's going around today. It's as sloppy as it can be. We love each other. We have the agape love and all that sort of thing. But are you walking in the truth? Are you really walking in the knowledge of the Word of God? You remember, that is something that all these apostles now we've seen, not only Paul, where we put a great emphasis, but we saw that James emphasized it, Peter emphasized it. Now John is emphasizing we are to walk in love. And that's important. And my friend... That's very important in these days in which we live. And it's wonderful if you're a fundamentalist. I hope you are. But I hope you're walking in love because you're not really a fundamentalist unless you are. Now, I must remind you of this again today because it is important to keep before us in this epistle the polarity of the Christian faith and the Christian life is truth and love. Now, it is true that for the believer, it's faith, hope, and love. And those are very important. But the objective polarity of the Christian faith today is truth and love. Now, John, in his first epistle, emphasized love. But he also said that that love is for the brethren. It's for believers. It's for those that are in Christ. My little children, he says, I want you to love one another. That's believers now. And this idea of watering down the Christian faith today and saying that you're to love everybody, I just don't quite understand that myself because I know that when you make a statement like that, you don't love everybody. It's just impossible to do that. There are too many in this world that are unlovely. A lot of us are. And as a result, why we are not loved. But as we said last time, God loves the world. He loves all of us, and we're not worth loving. But God loves us. And the important thing is that He says for you and me to take the gospel to them. And that's the way you and I can show our concern and love, if you want to call it that. But we're to take the gospel because God loves them. Then if we take it, I think in our hearts, as there was in the heart of Jonah, a love will be begotten for those that actually are enemies. But the important thing to see is that God is love. It's His attribute. And His love has provided a Savior for us. 
And that is important to keep before us. But truth is also very important. And you cannot put love above truth. Because when you do, then you've sacrificed truth. And John is emphasizing that. Now here in verse 6, he makes this statement. And this is love, that we walk after his commandments. Now, what is love? Well, it's to walk after his commandments. The Lord Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. This is another way of saying actually the same thing. Now, his commandments are more than the Ten Commandments. By all means, we should understand that. The Ten Commandments are basic to government and basic to civilization. But the Christian is called to a higher plane where he's to produce in his life by the Spirit because it's a fruit of the Spirit. It's love, joy, peace, long-suffering. Now, if these things are in us and abide in us, then you and I are walking after His commandments. Now, if they're not in us, we're not walking after His commandments. And this is love. Love is, again, let me say it, is not made in the parlor. It's made in the kitchen. It's not made in the bedroom. It's made out there in the washroom. Does she wash his clothes? Does he bring home his paycheck? Does he support his family? That's the way that you express love in the family. And that's the way that you express love in the church, your concern, your help for others. And you can't say that you're loving anyone unless you have a concern for them, and especially a concern for their spiritual welfare. And this is love, that we walk after His commandments. Now, this is getting it right down in shoe leather. This is getting right down where the rubber meets the road, by the way. This is a sidewalk salvation. It's that that can walk down the streets. Now, you must recall that these men, like John and Paul, are writing to people who live in the Roman world. And in Paul's day, it was bloody Nero. And in John's day, for he saw one emperor after another rise that persecuted Christians, beginning with Titus. And the persecution was severe. And yet here are men and women in that Roman world, a brutal world, a cruel world, a world that was pagan to the core. And yet here are men and women that are walking down Roman roads, living in pagan cities of that day, and they're doing what? They're walking after His commandments. They are translating the gospel into life. That is the thing that is desperately needed today. And I read the letter of this dear woman married to an unsaved man and now a pastor that is actually unsaved attempting to counsel them. A case of the blind leading the blind. Now will you notice, this is the commandment that as ye have heard from the beginning, ye should walk in it. John said, this thing is not 
to be put on ice. It's not something to be stored in the shelf. He says, you heard this from the beginning. The Lord Jesus taught this. Now, he's saying, we heard it from the beginning, and now let's get busy walking. Let's manifest this to those outside. Now again, there rises before us the other end of this polarization. Love is on one side, but truth is on the other. Now he issues his warning, and will you listen to him? He says, For many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ cometh in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. And actually, the word is the antichrist. Now, you will recall that John said in his first epistle that already there were many antichrists. And there was the spirit of antichrist. Now, what is the spirit of antichrist? How do we identify it? And I'm repeating now what we've said before, but this is so important that we need to repeat it, and it concerns the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who confess not that Jesus Christ cometh in the flesh. Now, it's to deny the deity of Christ. It is to deny, therefore, everything that is said about him, everything that he said, and everything that he did for us in redemption by dying on the cross, by being raised bodily from the dead. That is Antichrist. That is the spirit of Antichrist. Now, that eventually will be headed up by, I believe, not one man, but two men. For two are in the 13th of Revelation, and we'll see that when we get to it. That one of those is a great political ruler, an enemy of Christ. He's against Christ. The other one will be a religious ruler who will imitate Christ and cause the world to worship the first beast, that is, to worship the political ruler. Now, that is coming in the future, and everything this side of it's preparing the way for the coming of that one, so much so that when the political ruler finally appears and the religious ruler, the world will be ready for them. And it looks to me like it's almost ready for them today. To begin with, the political ruler will promise peace in the world. And for three and a half years, he's going to do a pretty good job of it. But it's not permanent. It's building up to a mighty catastrophe that ushers in or is ushered in by the war of Armageddon. And that will last for approximately three and a half years until the coming of Christ to the earth to establish his kingdom. And there will be one religion, and certainly we're moving in that direction today, a world religion where they all will pool their thinking. And we actually believe that it's going to be a religion that doesn't really believe anything. In other words, there will be nothing to hold them together. We hear so much today, let's get rid of that which separates us. Well, my friend, if you get rid of all that separates us, there won't be anything left to hold us together. That is the problem. 
It's like the story of the little black boy that was walking down the jungle trail in Africa, and he was carrying a polka dot umbrella, and he met an elephant. And the elephant said to him, where are you going, little boy? And he said, well, I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> and the elephant says, well, I'm not either. Let me go with you. And that's the kind of a church union that's coming about today. They're going nowhere. They believe nothing. Therefore, they can all get together. And may I say to you that that is the deceiver that is finally going to come, that will head up religion, one to head up religion, one to head up the politics of this world. And that is the Antichrist when he comes. Now, John says already in his day, there were many deceivers that had gone out. Now, Gnosticism in John's day was running rife, actually, because everywhere the gospel is gone, always the cults follow, and the schisms and the isms always follow the preaching of the gospel. They never go before. And so there was coming along now quite a few of what was known as the Gnostic sect, and they were divided into many groups. There was the group that was known as the Serenthian Gnostics, and they followed a teacher over in Ephesus by the name of Serenthus. And there is a tradition that John went down to the public bath there. He was a pastor there, and he saw Serenthus in taking a bath also. So he got out of the pool, grabbed up his clothes, didn't put them on till he got outside because he wouldn't have anything to do with that heretic. Well, that's a tradition. It may or may not be true, but it certainly expresses the viewpoint of John in this letter here. Now, the Serenthian Gnostics, they correspond to several of the cults today. They taught that Jesus and Christ actually were two entities altogether, and that the divine came upon Jesus at his baptism and left him at the cross. Well, then there was the docetic Gnostics. They actually denied the reality of the physical body, and they said that the apostles thought they saw Jesus, but actually he was not a real person at all. It was just an appearance. And we've got a few cults that will pick up that heresy also. And that's the reason John in the first epistle says we've seen him, we've heard him, we've gazed upon him, we've handled him. We know what we're talking about. He was a real man, if you please. Then there were certain Jewish sects in that day. And when Christianity came along, why, they picked up a great deal of the Christian teachings, the Essenes. Now, they were the ones where they found the, down to Qumran, they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. Well, that evidently were a group of Essenes down there. And then a Masada that fell in 73 A.D., three years after Jerusalem fell. Well, about 967 zealots went there. Now, they had picked up also some of the teaching of Christ, and they had twisted, distorted, and warped conceptions of the person of Christ. Now, the thing that John is saying here, and it's all important today, and it's this, that there are many deceivers 
that have entered into the world. And they've sort of centered here in Southern California. This is a place where we incubate them. This is a great incubation center for all kinds of false teachings. I used to say when I was introduced around across the country, I come from the land of flowers, fruits, and nuts, mostly religious nuts. But I hope that the folk wouldn't think I was one of them, and I certainly hope that you don't think so. However, apparently there are folk that think that I am. But that's beside the point. The important thing here is this, that the way you tell the one that is true is his viewpoint, his teaching, his belief concerning the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, unless you think rightly of him, my friend, everything else goes down the tube, and that person is a false teacher. Now, that does not mean that a person that maybe holds different views than maybe you and I would hold on election. That's been a debatable point. John Wesley taught one thing. John Calvin taught another viewpoint on that. But both of those men believed in the deity of Christ. And when you believe in the deity of Christ, it means you believe in the virgin birth of Christ and the count of the virgin birth. It means you believe in the record that we have. It means you believe in the apostles' doctrine that they taught in their epistles. Now, there can be a difference of opinion about election. These two men, but neither one of them was a false teacher because both of them agreed on that. And then there are those today that believe a little differently about the work of the Holy Spirit. And I find that I violently disagree with some man. I have a Pentecostal friend that he and I play golf together. I consider him a real brother. I have preached in his church. But that man exalts the deity of Christ, and he preaches salvation by faith in the redemptive work of Christ on the cross. And I say amen to it. Now, he and I disagree on some other things, but we haven't found it necessary to club each other, to beat each other over the head. The important thing is your belief concerning the person of Jesus Christ, and that's the way you tell whether one is a deceiver. Now, in a letter, this woman is going, even being counseled, because her husband apparently won't go to any other, by a preacher that she says, is not a born-again believer. Well, we know what he believes about the person of Christ. He's an antichrist. And personally, I would say we're to have no fellowship with folk like that at all. We have nothing in common with them at all. Now, we're going to come down a little later to something on that. And let me just use one other illustration in this connection. I went to my denominational seminary. I'm a graduate there, as well as having done graduate work at Dallas Theological Seminary, and I got my master's and doctor's degree there. But I graduated. My B.D. degree came from my denominational seminary. Now, that school was amillennial. They were dead set against the premillennial position. And fact of the matter is, 
one of the professors there. He and I became very good friends. I admired him a great deal. He was an intellectual. And that man, he could exalt the person of Christ. And he could defend the virgin birth and the blood redemption and the bodily resurrection in a way that I've heard no other person. And I have actually sat in his class with tears coming down my eyes as I heard him exalt Christ, which, you know, he just hated premillennialism. He didn't hate me. He and I were good friends. But I never felt that we ought to separate or that I ought to break fellowship with him because of the fact that he exalted Christ. He's no antichrist. He's a believer. And I can't help it. He's an intellectual, of course. And even they are wrong in some things. And so I just took it for granted he was wrong in that particular sphere. And I'm sure someday that he and I, when we get to heaven, we're going to be in agreement. And it may be both of us are going to have to change a little relative to our belief concerning these secondary matters. And I do consider them secondary when you put it down beside the person of Jesus Christ. It's what do you think of him, my friend? That's all important. Now John says in verse 8, Look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. Now, you don't lose your salvation when you have fellowship with the wrong folk. I think we need to understand that very carefully. We put ourselves in a dangerous position. But it does mean this, that the minute that you and I identify ourselves with a cult, or we go off into this type of a thing today that denies the deity of Christ, we've lost our reward. There will be no reward for a believer that has done a thing like this. And that, I think, is made perfectly clear in this particular passage here. Now, this is strong language, but you haven't heard anything yet. Now, in verse 9, he goes on in this vein here, the same vein that he'd been talking about. Now, he says this, that if you are taken in by one of these deceivers, it does not mean you lose your salvation. It means that you lose any reward. And every believer ought to be working for a reward, to be able to hear him say, Someday, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And Paul, at the end of his life, was able to say, I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness. And he knew he would receive a reward at the end of his life. Now, during his life, he wasn't sure of it. He said that he didn't want to be disapproved when he came into the presence of Christ. Therefore, it will behoove you and me to be very careful not to be taken in. Now he says in verse 9, Whosoever transgresseth. Now this word transgress is a very interesting word in the Greek. It's proagon. Ago means to go. And pro means before. It means to go before or to go ahead. And actually... It means here not so much transgress as to go farther than is right. And that is the meaning that Thea in his Greek lexicon gives to it. 
go farther than is right. Whosoever goes farther than is right. That is, goes to some extreme. That was the thing the Gnostics claimed. In fact, the word Gnostic means knowledge. They claimed to have a little more knowledge than anyone else, that they had something that made them super-dupers. And there are a lot of saints, I say a lot, there are few that I've met today are in that category. They feel like they have something that you don't have. I get a letter every now and then from some person that tells me that I'm lacking, and I recognize I am, but the point is I just don't feel like they're the one to tell me because they tell it from the viewpoint they've got it and I don't have it. Now, that could well be true, by the way, but my feeling is they've gone farther than is right. They feel like they are super-duper, and they manifest no love for the brethren. Now, that is the thing that characterizes them. I always think of the little story that I've told it before about Bishop Moore of the old Southern Methodist Church. He was at a conference in my Southland. There were a group of people that were known when I was a boy as Holy Rollers. I've attended several of their meetings when I was a boy and a young fella just for the entertainment, actually, to watch them roll, and they actually rolled. And yet they preached the gospel, and many of them were really believers. And Bishop Moore was at this conference of Methodist preachers, and one of these young country preachers came up to Bishop Moore and said to him, says, Bishop Moore, do you think the holy rollers will go to heaven? He says, they will if they don't run past the place. Well, that is the condition, it seems to me, of what John is saying here. Whosoever goes farther than is right becomes an extremist and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. You see, they graduate from this. I was reading just some time ago about several theologians in the East together with several pastors that met together, and they felt that they had arrived now at the place where they did not need to answer the fundamentalists on the question of the virgin birth or the deity of Christ or whether Christ died for his sin. They feel like they've graduated from that. They have now become highly intellectual, totally sanctified, and they have reached the summum bonum of life. They are now up at the apex, and they look down upon all the rest of us poor folk who believe in the deity of Christ and that he died for our sins. You see, to my judgment, they have transgressed and they abide not in the doctrine of Christ and they have not God. No wonder they came to the conclusion that God's dead. He wasn't dead. They were. That was the problem. Dead in trespasses and sins. And he that abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. Now, you today are abiding in the doctrine of Christ. You have God the Father, and you have God the Son, and you have access to God through the Son today. We have access to God through Christ. 
by His marvelous infinite grace today if we abide in the doctrine of Christ. Now, that word abide here means actually to remain. This is a permanent arrangement. And that is another criticism that sometimes has been made. Someone was telling me this, that they asked a liberal preacher in Los Angeles several years ago what he thought about me, this liberal preacher. And he's an outstanding man, a very fine man in many ways. I've always respected him because he's one of the few honest liberals that I've met. He just came out and said he'd believe practically nothing, and he stuck by his guns. I just didn't feel he should be in the ministry. You know, it's sort of like a man selling full of brushes, and he doesn't have any brushes to sell. And so that was the position, I thought, of this man. And the man said this. He said, concerning McGee. He says, I respect McGee and his viewpoint. He says it's old-fashioned. And the thing is, he hasn't changed it in years. He hasn't apparently grown a bit. Well, may I say to you, that's about the nicest compliment the man could have returned to me because he said, I haven't changed. And I intend for it to be that way. You see, that's what he's saying here that he that bideth in the doctrine of Christ remains in it. It doesn't change. He hath both the Father and the Son. Now, this is very important to see. Now we come to that which is strong. And I want to say to you, here is strong language. And you won't find anything stronger than this. Verse 10, If there come any unto you, and bring not this doctrine. Receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed. Now, friends, I can't think of anything stronger than that. Now, let's get the background again. John is writing to the elect lady. We believe that it's not only a person, an outstanding woman in the church, who is noted for her hospitality apparently a woman of means, and she could entertain guests lavishly. And she was very generous. And apparently, some of these Gnostics came by, and she entertained them. And then she was under conviction about it. And she wrote John. What should she do in a case like that? Should she entertain them? Then she turned them away, and she felt badly about that. What should she have done? What should really be her attitude toward an apostate, toward these heretics, toward those who denied the deity of Christ but pretended to be a follower of Christ? Should she entertain them in her home? Now, let's get some more background to understand what actually John is saying here. In the early church, there were no Howard Johnson motels or Holiday Inns or Hilton Hotels or Ramada Inns in the Roman Empire. In other words, these little inns were pretty bare places to stay. Actually, an inn was not a place where you even got a bed. You had to bring your own bed with you, and all you did was 
rent a space to put down your little mat or little pad that you had, and you slept on that. Maybe people sleeping on both sides of you and at the head and down at the foot all around. And that was the method in that day of traveling. So the homes of believers were always open in the early church to traveling evangelists and traveling Bible teachers of that day. And they were always entertained in a home. When they'd arrive in a town, there would be some home that would entertain them. Remember, Paul stayed in the home of Aquila and Priscilla over in Corinth when he arrived there. That was the method in the early church. It was the method that others practiced also, to entertain in the home. Now, that was a general practice of the day. And I can remember as a boy that when we had a preacher that came to our little town in West Texas, my dad was not a believer, but my mother would invite the preacher to come for dinner and sometimes to spend the night. My dad never liked that. I can tell you that. He didn't care to have him for dinner, and he didn't care to have him spend the night. But we were poor folk. He didn't get too lavish entertainment. He'd always get a fried chicken. And my mother really knew how to fry chicken. So that that was always something that was practiced in that day. And in our little town, even up to this day, the Holiday Inn hasn't even got there yet, or the Ramada or Howard Johnson. In fact, they just don't have a motel there of any kind or description. So that in our day, the preacher was entertained in the home. Now today, my recommendation to you is to entertain him in a motel or a hotel. That would be the proper way to do it today and not in a home because we've moved into a day the average minister needs a great deal of privacy for study and prayer. And he can't get that when he's entertained in a home. However, there are a few homes across this country I've always enjoyed going in because I made myself at home and I could feel at home in those homes. They just let me do what I wanted to do, and it was a joy to be there. But now this woman apparently was that type of a woman. And her question is, what about these that come? Now, John lays it on the line. If there come any unto you, and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed. Now, may I say to you very candidly today that John is going to say something else that ought to alert every one of you listening to this program today. For he that biddeth him Godspeed is partaker of his evil deeds. If you entertain him, if you support him, you are a partner with him in this sort of thing. And that, my friend, is the reason that you ought to investigate everything that you give to as a Christian. Because if you are giving to the wrong thing, God considers you a partner to that sort of thing. You remember, the Lord Jesus gave a parable in this connection, and he didn't mind speaking about this sort of thing. He told about that man that was working for another, and he was going to be fired. And so he wanted to take care of himself. And so he called in. You remember the creditors gave them a discount. They'd pay their bill, and they were glad to do it. 
And so he did that so that after he was fired, he would be able to appeal to them for help because he had helped them. Now, that was crooked. Our Lord didn't say it was right. In fact, he made it clear it was wrong because he said that the children of this world, they're clever out yonder in this business world today. And there's many a man trying to make a fast buck today. And a businessman told me not long ago, it's a case in Southern California of dog eat dog. And therefore, if the man in the world is wise about the way he invests his money and the way he uses his money, what about you, Christian friend? Are you moved by some sentimental story, some deathbed story, and you give because of that? Or a picture of a few orphans and these pictures of little children in foreign countries? Do you know that your money is going there? Are you motivated today by sentiment? If you are a partner today in those things that deny the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he is and all that he stands for and all that he did for us today, if you are supporting that sort of thing, you are a partner in it. God will hold you responsible for it. Therefore, he says that the children of this world are wiser than we are, and we ought to be smart. We ought to get smart, and we ought to wise up to this sort of thing today and not be taken in Why this thing in the way of charity has become a big racket, and it's one of the biggest rackets that there is, taking up money for this thing, that thing, and that's the reason I always mention that I never yet have started running an orphan's home for stray cats in the Aleutian Islands. In fact, I don't know whether any cat's up there or not, but I know this, that that's not my business. My business is giving out the Word of God today, and that's all it is. And this is what John said. I didn't say this. Now will you notice? He's going to conclude now, verse 12 and 13. Having many things to write unto you, I would not write with paper and ink. Well, he wrote a pretty small letter, if you ask me. But I trust to come unto you and speak face to face that your joy may be full. In other words, John says, I can tell it better than I can write it. And David, you remember, said that. David says, my tongue is a pen of a ready writer. David, when he began to write that wonderful 45th Psalm of praise to Christ, he just said, I wish I could tell it to you. I could say it better than I can write. That's the reason I love radio today is I can say it. And I can say it lots better than I can write it. Now he says, the children of thy elect sister greet thee. Amen. Apparently there was a sister of this elect lady or it was a sister church sending greetings to this lady and to the local church there. This is a tremendous little letter, friends, and this is something that ought to alert every believer today. Until next time, may God richly bless you, my beloved.